Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. Today I'm joined by Dr. David McIntyre, the author of the book series, How to Think About Homeland Security. Dr. David McIntyre has been writing, teaching, and presenting on national and homeland security issues for 30 years. He is currently a lecturer at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. Before that, he was deputy director of the Answer Institute for Homeland Security in Washington, D.C. Colonel McIntyre began those duties after a 30-year career in the United States Army, where he served in airborne and armored cavalry units, wrote and taught strategy, and retired as the dean of faculty and academics at the National War College. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Very uh, pleased to be with you. Can you tell us a little more about your background and how you became interested in writing about Homeland Security? So Homeland Security as a field today is one where almost everyone who is in it backed into it. Fields like political science, economics, folks set out to do that for a living. But just because where we are in sort of generational development of this field, everybody who's really doing this as a professor at an upper level, kind of backed into it and came from some other background. My background was national security. I spent uh, 34 years in the Army. First half was in operational assignments, like uh, 82nd Airborne Division and uh, border reconnaissance in the Iron Curtain. And then the last half was in strategy. I was a speechwriter for three different four stars. I wrote uh, uh, for the Army Chief of Staff. And I spent my last eight years at the National War College where I retired as the dean of faculty. And while I was there, the term Homeland Security was born. So um, it was born actually out of a DOD document. Consequently, we had the first academic conference in the United States on the subject in the 1990s. We had the first graduate level class on the subject in the 1990s, uh, built by one of our instructors, uh, Colonel Andy Larson. We We had the first senior people come to speak to our student body. Uh, on that subject. And I, I just kind of stayed with it after I retired. I was at a meeting on 9-11 with Booz Allen talking about whether um, national missile defense should be considered an element of homeland security. And so um, I, I, I backed into the subject. I've now been doing it for 20 years. I've been teaching homeland security, I think, probably longer at the graduate level than anybody else in the United States. I, I've taught about 60 graduate level courses on the topic. How to Think About Homeland Security is a four-volume series, and we'll be talking about the first two volumes today. Why did you choose to approach the content in this format? Well, there are a couple of reasons, and the big one is my students. 
So here's the problem with studying Homeland Security at the graduate level. If you if you take uh, uh, approach graduate school in almost any other subject, I, you uh, got a little bit of that as an undergraduate. So I went to uh, my master's degree is in uh, English and American literature because I was headed to teach English at West Point. But my undergraduate degree was in engineering. Nonetheless, I touched literature. If you do history, if you do biology, if you do mathematics, no matter what your undergraduate was, when you, when you get to graduate school, you touched it somehow in, the, in your undergraduate studies, except for Homeland Security. Almost nobody gets Homeland Security as an undergrad. So I have good students. I teach right now at the Bush School uh, at uh, Texas A&M. I, I have taught with other policy schools. I have good students who know nothing about the topic. And it's very hard to establish a graduate-level Socratic approach to uh, graduate education with people who literally know nothing about the subject. So uh, I decided what they need is kind of a, uh, a cheat sheet on Homeland Security. I, I sat down and took all 60 courses I've taught in the last 20 years, broke them up into topics, about 100 topics, and then set out to write a mid-length essay, 3,000 6,000 words on each one of those topics, breaking them into volumes. And um, fortunately, I found a publisher in uh, Roman Littlefield who was interested in working that with me. And the one other big advantage of that approach is it lets me break up a text so it doesn't cost so much. Uh, I, I have students who are paying $100, $120 for a textbook. So I'm able to break the subject up so that for a particular course, maybe the textbook is $30. And then for a different course, it'll be another 30 and that lastly makes the, the, the works available to other people, like a general audience or practitioners. So that, that's, that's why I took this approach. Let's not put it all in one book. Let's spread it across several volumes. And I've actually had a pretty good uh, response to that. Before we jump into the first two volumes, I'd like to ask you about the tone and the recommendations you make. Because the Department of Homeland Security was stood up by President George W. Bush, your book is examining policy decisions that were made in the very recent past. Was it challenging to write about recent history as these policies continue to be shaped and implications of decisions continue to unfold? Uh, absolutely. The most challenging single aspect of this book is, first of all, finding the information, because uh, so much of the really key issues in Homeland Security are, uh, are on the web and not in writing. And as you well know, as uh, from your own research, things go up on the web and they go down on the web. They change on the web. What you researched last week and have just written a chapter about, suddenly a new version's out and the, new, and the old version disappeared. That's a very challenging thing to, uh, to take aboard, try, try to establish ground truth. It's really only the fact that I've been doing this for 20 years and have a very extensive library that I've copied uh, over time that... Uh, that let, lets me uh, lets me take that on board. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a it's a it's a big challenge. The first volume is called the imperfect intersection of national security and public safety. Can you tell us more about this idea of an imperfect intersection? Well, I should have mentioned first. My goal with the book is a little different from other texts, which is why it gives a different tone. When I say how to think, I mean quite literally. I want my students, my readers, my general public to think about how they are thinking about this subject, to be a little more objective, to question their way through it. This book is about inquiry. So, 
So my approach is not, here are the answers. My approach is, we can't get the answers right unless we get the questions right. We can't get the questions right unless we get the language right. Let's begin with the language uh, that that we we use. Um, And so hence the focus, the initial focus on uh, national security. And I think you, you suggested that it acts as kind of a summary for a national security course. Did you find that uh, the case when you read through the book? Yes, it is a bit of a Cliff Notes version of attending the War College. And obviously, you think it's important to have a foundational understanding of national security concepts to build on in the way that you are conceptualizing homeland security. The other thing it lets me do, and again, you you have to have a special editor and a special uh, publisher in order to do this. They've allowed me to use a bit of a conversational tone and humor. And and I find that really important to keep keeping people engaged in the book. So, for example, in one of the chapters, uh, I explore the question of essentially who killed civil defense. I mean, what happens to civil defense in the United States? And and the, um, the departure point is the game Clue, which most people played when they were a kid, you know, who did it, uh, Colonel Mustard with the, in the library with a candlestick. And so working through the chapter, the conclusion I come to of who killed uh, uh, civil defense is the, the answer is the Department of Homeland Security in the basement with PowerPoint. Um, it, it, that, that I find has students have responded to me by saying they, they find it a little more um, interesting, adventurous. They like the humor part of the, of the text. uh, Let me move on to the the title, the point of thinking about Homeland Security from the departure point of national security. So for um, the history of the United States, I mean, Ben Franklin formed the first fire company, the first fire department as a private entity way back in his times. We have dealt with our domestic challenges very nicely, thank you, using public safety. Um, and those public safety organizations have grown and changed over time, but they've been able to handle our internal challenges, police, fire, EMS, uh, FEMA, DEA, even FBI. We've even, we've even had some significant overseas challenges. We had German spies and saboteurs in the First and Second World War. The FBI was able to roll them up. Um, we had a significant domestic challenge from uh, Soviet communist spies, not so much sabotage. Uh, our domestic law enforcement handled that. We've handled the mob. We've handled the Klan. It doesn't mean everything's perfect, but, but we've done domestic security very well with public safety. And we have left international issues to the Department of Defense and Department of State. So international security, challenges against our border from outside, are handled by one element of our government, all focused uh, in the administration with one person in charge, the president. And domestic problems are handled by a whole series of levels of government, federal law enforcement, state law enforcement, county law enforcement, constables, deputy sheriffs. All these people may not even know each other, but they make domestic law enforcement work. The same is true of hospitals. Well, suddenly in 9-11, we realized that we have an international threat posed by an international enemy who wants to strike us at home with a new type of weapon, weapons of mass destruction. And by the way, we have a new set of vulnerabilities. There was a time in the United States, for example, you, uh, when you ride down the road, you see these big white tanks. They're full of gasoline or diesel or benzene or some different chemical. 
There was a time in the United States where collectively those uh, tanks held about a 21-day supply of fuel and chemicals for us. Because of just-in-time delivery, today we have nationally about an 11-day supply. And it takes about four days, three or four days, to hold the sides of the tank or tanks erect. So we are more vulnerable to out to these new outside attacks by outside groups using a new set of weapons. And that that brings national security issues home to us domestically. The problem is we did not spend the time or money or effort, and by the way, I don't necessarily think we should have, but to create a new homeland security force. So we have international effort, uh, uh, attacks or threats being answered by existing public safety people who already have their hands full. You know, it's not like some duties went away or we hired a whole bunch of new police officers. We just said, oh, yeah, by the way, there might be nuclear weapons. Uh, and that that poses a particular challenge. I'm not sure we as a nation have our heads around how difficult it is for all of these different levels of government, mayors and county commissioners, to deal with international threats. You know, my county judge here in Texas, we our counties, uh, our senior county officials are called uh, judges. And my county uh, judge told me once, Dave, uh, you know, nobody has ever asked me, how's our biodefense plan? But people call me at home and say, when are you going to fix the pothole? Well, those are the people we've laid Homeland Security duties on. And it makes the whole thing very hard to understand and very hard to integrate. How would you gauge the progress of DHS since it was stood up in 2003? Well, I actually think we've done a number of things uh, very well. I, I think DHS, um, so first of all, here's the problem with uh, counterterrorism, uh, which is essentially what DHS was created for. As I, as I mentioned, we've, we've handled all of these domestic problems in the past with domestic forces. Now we've got an international problem, and we're, we're trying to handle that largely with domestic forces. Even DHS was created out of existing domestic groups that were put together. And, and I think they ought to get credit for an enormous number of um, innovative changes that they've made over the last 20 years. Uh, and not just DHS. Let, let's take an example of adaptation. So the FBI has nine major areas that they look at. They focus on federal crimes, not state and local. They have uh, nine major areas. White collar uh, is, uh, is one of those uh, areas. Uh, organized crime is one of those areas. Terrorism was on their list, but way down the list. They made the shift almost overnight uh, after 9-11 to make terrorism their number one priority. And they've done it pretty well. I get, uh, you know, the problem with counterterrorism, the challenge of counterterrorism is the better you are at it, the more it seems like a waste of time. We put all this time and effort into it and nothing happened. Well, yeah, that's, that's the point. But it makes justifying the time and effort difficult. The FBI, I think, has done a great job working with um, our intelligence agencies overseas, working with law enforcement domestically, with the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which they've formed. Every um, FBI office, 56 of them uh, nationwide, now has a intelligence fusion center. They didn't have those before 9-11. So that's an example of adaptation. I, I think it's been uh, done very well. Um, DOD has evolved. I don't, that's not exactly adaptation. They've evolved. They've added uh, Northern Command. NORTHCOM is the integrator of all uses of military force inside the United States. Border Patrol uh, wants to borrow a drug dog from the military 
for use at a border crossing, that they have to go somewhere to get that permission. And it's routed through Army North in San Antonio to uh, Northern Command in Colorado Springs to the Department of Defense, and they handle those requests. And we had no system for that whatsoever when we launched fighter jets on the morning of 9-11. That's how completely our mindset has changed. So that's been very good. Um, DHS has created a number of new organizations. Um, perhaps the most recent is an organization called Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction, uh, CWMD. And, and they recognize the problem in, in Homeland Security. Nobody is an overall charge. And they've tried to pull together in one office the key players to understand and try to develop some policies for weapons of mass destruction. That's a very innovative, creative thing to do. Some would argue it would have been even more innovative and creative if we'd done it about 2003. But I'm really uh, glad to see it happen. So, so yeah, I think we've made a lot of uh, changes. Same things that uh, true at state and local levels. You know, I, I live in, uh, 90 miles northwest uh, of, of uh, Houston in College Station, Texas. And we, Texas is 254 counties broken into a series of councils of government, 24 councils of government, about six, eight, nine counties so that uh, for administrative, so they can help each other into administrative districts. And the first time we had a, a counterterrorism or homeland security meeting, I, I attended the very first one. There were 60 people in, in the meeting from um, six different counties, and everybody with a gun sat in one part of the room. Everybody who did health sat in a different part of the room. Uh, everybody who did fire um, and emergency response sat in a different part of the room. Well, it's been a considerable thing. You know what? They all know each other now. They mix each other. They even meet each other socially. And when somebody needs something across county lines, there's no question. It's no longer who do we call, how do we pass that. They just call Billy Bob and, and get him the truck he needs and the fuel he needs, the arrangements are made. We've made huge strides, and I don't think we give ourselves enough credit for that. In your final analysis in Volume 1, you say, go ask your moms. What do you mean by that? <laughs> so ha having listed all the good things, we still have some serious problems. The first challenge we face is the Tenth Amendment of the Constitution of the United States, the Enumeration Amendment, which says those powers that are not enumerated to the, um, the federal government reside with the state government. And Homeland Security, not enumerated in the Constitution to the federal government. So the President of the United States can give an order to the Department of Defense and he say, and say, you know, tomorrow morning, I want everybody to start using their left hand to salute instead of their right hand. And everybody in the world does it. There is no order the president can give that a deputy sheriff in Thibodeau, Louisiana, has to take. It's not the way our system works. At one point, we had one person in charge of all this. His name was King George, and we got rid of him. So, so there's, a, there's a real problem with tensions over jurisdictions and authorities and responsibilities and bureaucracies and funding. Who, who's going to pay for what? Um, we have a big problem in perspectives. Police and fire don't see the world the same way at all. Um, at one point when DHS was funded, somebody said, um, um, how about, why do we have all these different people with aviation assets and we train them all in different schools? Why don't we have one flight school and just consolidate pilot, uh, pilot training? Well, that's an interesting point until you actually sit down and talk to people and you realize that when the weather gets bad, the Border Patrol lands. When the weather gets bad, the Coast Guard takes off. 
is very hard to train those those two different types of pilots in the same organization. There's a, there's a wide variety of perspectives on what we're doing. And, and we really don't have yet any Homeland Security theories. The Department of Defense, our international relations, this is all driven out of academia by academic theories about security and diplomacy. We don't have anything like that in, in DHS, uh, in, in the Homeland Security or, or DHS. So there's a real problem about how, how, what do we use as a driver to integrate uh, our thinking on Homeland Security? The solution right now is frameworks, not theories, but frameworks. So, for example, uh, FEMA says we should break up preparedness into five areas, prevention, protection, response, recovery, and mitigation. So if you're teaching preparedness, you teach those five areas. It's not a theory. It's a way to think about um, how to prepare for storms and so forth. My argument, my argument is that if we just do that, all we're doing is organize, better organizing what we did in the past to really get to the new issues. We have to talk about the weapons of mass destruction that we've sort of quit talking about because we haven't had one in a while. These things, Craig Fugate, former uh, emergency manager for Florida and former director of FEMA, called maximum of maximums. It was really comes out of the study of hurricanes. The worst that you can imagine for a hurricane is the maximum of maximums. And if you prepare your city for the mom, that max, then you'll be, you know, a, a hurricane uh, uh, category five, you'll be okay for a category one and two. So my argument is if you want to step back and, and think about how to think about the new thing, Homeland Security, international threats, using new, new threats, using new weapons to new, against new vulnerabilities, then you should use the maximum of maximums that we could face, not another hurricane. We know how to do that. Not a flood in the city. We know how to do that. Not a wildfire. We know how to do that. Nuke, chem, bio, EMP, these things are entirely different challenges. They cross borders. Um, they uh, are linked so that uh, so that if you have a collapse in one area, it cascades through other areas of government, through other areas. You know, you can have a attack against petrochemical plants that shuts down gasoline production, and suddenly you have a food shortage in the cities. That doesn't happen from a hurricane. It, it, that could happen if you attack enough pipelines across the United States. So if you want to, to really think about homeland security, this new thing that, you know, that exists at the intersection of international security and public safety, you have to think about the moms. Go ask your moms about what's the worst thing we could face and then build on that. This is a good transition to volume two, which covers risk, because while the maximum of maximums may be a useful approach, certainly, it must be bounded by some understanding of what a credible threat is. Was that an intentional choice to focus on risk in volume two? Well, that's a good question, Beth. It was intentional in that uh, I, I, I explained uh, earlier that I really did lay out the shape of all this to begin with, the general shape of, of um, taking my different topics I've taught over the last 20 years and breaking them into shorter essays and grouping the essays. But having said that, you know, anybody who teaches learns more than the students they teach because they learn so much from research. And I learned some things I didn't know when I sat down to talk about risks and threats. For example, I, I just didn't realize that our efforts in 
what today we would call preparedness, what's at one time was called civil defense, reached back to the First World War. I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that in 1917 that uh, uh, that president uh, put together a program to look at the internal issues and defense of parts of the United States domestically. Uh, I didn't realize that um, that FDR put together, uh, while that died out, the FDR renovated it under LaGuardia, uh, Mayor LaGuardia from New York, before the Second World War began, um, resurrected that approach and began to build a program for the security of our um, uh, our um, war production facilities. Uh, I really didn't understand until I began my research that there's been a competition for nearly 100 years now over what priorities are we going to set? Are, uh, there's limited money. Are we more interested in securing domestic production of defense resources or people? So let's take that one example of FDR creating under LaGuardia a um, office to look nationally at the protection of um, sort of civil defense, the systems that would be used to go to war. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt, who was a big champion in social justice, uh, stepped in and saw this as an opportunity to divert money to one of her favorite causes. And she said there's no more important readiness issue in getting ready for war than in making sure that our children are physically prepared. And we have many schools in the nation where the children have no physical education. They get no exercise. Uh, they may go back home to work as, as children. And so she argued for the diversion of some of LaGuardia's money from defending uh, defense contractors to um, putting physical fitness programs into American schools. That's a, that's a very interesting sort of uh, um, uh, split and the way to think about securing the nation. And it exists right up to today, right into the Department of Homeland Security. It's, as you well know, because of your work in DHS, um, the people think of uh, Homeland Security as protecting them. They saw the buildings in 9-11. They saw people jumping to their desks. They think of Homeland Security as protecting them. Well, that's what FEMA does. And so FEMA has a whole approach to risk that starts at the local community and says, what risks are you likely to face? And let's build on those at the really local level, the town level, city level, county level, state level. And then we build that into a national program of risk focused on the, the threats each community is most likely to face. Um, there's a different part of DHS which focuses on the national infrastructures, the things that keep the nation working as a nation, food, water transportation, banking, health. As you well know, that's, that's done out of what's um, um, cybersecurity uh, and infrastructure um, security, CISA. Now, they work that, and they work that with industries, and they look at uh, uh, risk management for the chemical industry, for the petrochemical industry, and for the pharmaceutical industry. So we have this competition right now today between are we going to spend money on protecting the individual citizen we're going to spend money on protecting the systems and sorting out those priorities is, to my way of thinking, part of what you should be studying in graduate education in the field of homeland security. So that's what the second uh, book is about. 
And this lens for viewing Homeland Security, it's potentially controversial. And you make a point in volume one with the imperfect intersection that you're really looking at this space through the lens of national interest. And that includes economic interests of the state, which may not be the same as individual interests. So, so let's talk about that for a second, because that, to my mind, is a very important point. I, I, I keep talking about national security. What, what does homeland security have to do with national security? Well, let me go back to we don't need homeland security for better police protection. We don't need um, a Department of Homeland Security to deal with MS-13. We don't need a Department of Homeland Security to deal with California wildfires. So what's it for? Well, it uses the resources of police and fire, so it can't drop those duties. But it really is for the collection, protection, and projection of national power. And as you know, because again, from your um, uh, background, both in DHS and, and uh, other studies that you've done, by national power, we really, we really categorize that into economic power, intelligence power, the power of information, like how the internet works and runs, cybersecurity, um, military power, um, and uh, um, uh, I include uh, on that the power of the nation as a whole, getting the people behind uh, an issue. So traditionally, we've used the term uh, dime, uh, diplomatic, uh, uh, informational, military, and economic I think we need to broaden that a bit for Homeland Security. But the point is that these are national level powers that we now have to protect. The Department of, if you want to use the Department of Defense overseas, it's got to get from here to there. So you have the biggest concentration of tanks in the United States Army, which means in the world, at Fort Hood, Texas. You want to use them overseas, they've got to get to a, a port that can ship them and then go by ship. Well, how do you get them from Fort Hood to that port? You move them by rail or by truck. How many bridges, how many railroad crossings between Fort Hood and the port of Beaumont? Well, a lot. And if we were up against a serious overseas threat expressed domestically, how do you guard all of those crossings? Who's gonna watch out for that? Suddenly you've dumped a big problem on the local police and the local sheriff. And so Homeland Security needs to think about those problems. And I, I just think we haven't yet come to grips on really what part um, security plays for the national power and the ability to protect our interests overseas. That's sort of the whole I'm trying to address with this book or this book series. rather. Through this lens of national power, knowing we are looking at a variety of threats, what do we really need to understand about risk and risk management for Homeland Security? Wow, this, this, this is a, a really tough one. This is a hard, hard uh, subject. And if people deal with it by, by breaking it down and making, uh, applying the term um, to their very narrow area, but that, that loses sight of what happens nationwide. There's some problems with risk. There's a reason we want to do risk management. There's not enough money for everything. I know how to secure the nation against all threats. I mean, we, we could do that. It's just that the nation begins to look like Bulgaria in 1985. You know, there's a machine gun pillbox in every corner. We don't want to do that. Show us your papers, please, to go from state to state. We also know how to maintain all of our rights and liberties. But we have to su suffer some casualties along the way. Well, we, we don't want to do that either. 
Well, how do we find that, that mix in the middle? It's really hard. Here, here's the example that I use why, why it's a problem. Secure your home. I'll, I'll say to the listeners, secure your home, right? Just think about your house and think about ways to secure it. I do this in class. I do this with, the, with groups I speak to, and I get some pretty good answers. Uh, we'll put exterior lighting. We'll trim the bushes away from the windows. We'll change the locks. We'll stop the newspaper when we're traveling. You know, there are lots of things we can do to secure our home. Um, then, I, then I say, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I, I didn't quite explain it. You have a three-year-old toddler coming to visit. Secure your home. Well, that's a, that's a whole different problem, right? Now we gotta, we got to uh, put the dog out. we got to find the bleacher under the counter. We have to find the, uh, the scissors and put the scissors away. we gotta, we got to turn all the handles on the stove. Um, what's the problem? The problem in securing our home inside is that there is a little hostile intelligence looking to use all this stuff against us. Our, our home's full of dangerous stuff that we don't plan to use against ourselves, but, but enter a, a hostile intelligence inside the home, we have a problem. So we have a nation full of dangerous stuff. We put the chemical plants near the cities so people could go to work. We ran the railroad lines, the shortest distance between two, port, two points. So um, you'll pass uh, 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 trains carrying really ugly stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll pass 100 yards from a football stadium with, with 100,000 people. And all over the nation, we have this problem. Our, our electrical grid is full of transformers, almost unprepared, uh, un, unprotected. Um, our lifeline for energy is the, is the uh, pipelines across the United States. And they're very obvious because they have the, every once in a while, they, they have these pumping stations, and, and, and they're not protected. So how do you do that? How do you protect inside your home? There's only two things you can do when the toddler comes to visit. Um, you can either watch that little hostile intelligence all the time. Okay, welcome to security cameras everywhere. Or you can change the way you live. You can do away with all that, that uh, convenience that you're living with. Well, we don't want either one. We want, we want what we want. We want to balance that. And that, that Beth, is a very hard thing to do. It's the challenge that's that's been put forward in this modern age. It's what makes Homeland Security such, such a difficult challenge. Everybody laughs at, uh, at uh, TSA and everybody's mad about taking their shoes off and it, until you realize what kind of stuff TSA is stopping and what it, in, what it intimidates people from not trying. Um, and, and then you realize we've got to figure this out and learn to live with the new set of threats. You talk about how difficult it can be to manage these different risk types and even how to quantify some of them. And I think it's useful for a student to understand where these risk assessments are coming from. You go so far as to call the critical infrastructure work a brother from another mother as compared to FEMA. Do you want to tell us more about how you laid that out? Well, that's, that's the idea that uh, FEMA is talking about risks to individual cities and towns. So uh, FEMA will have each, uh, they have a publication, uh, CPG 201. Um, the Thyra is the short name um, uh, that uh, people in the, in the sort of business use. And it's to calculate uh, or try to figure out what are the risks you are most likely to face in your local community. Are you more likely to face fire, flood, um, um, 
some kind of biological incident, which, by the way, sometimes along the along the border is a serious problem, or sometimes in, because of transportation, bringing food in from other uh, countries uh, can be a problem. What what risks is it uh, do you face? And then what measures can we afford to take to m- m- mitigate um, or uh, reduce or eliminate those risks? And, and there are a bunch of very um, uh, there are a bunch of companies that do that with proprietary software. The Coast Guard has been very good in doing that over the last 30, 40 years, looking at the risks to ports and how to reduce, how to mitigate if something does happen, uh, risks to ports. But there's a problem with risk. Uh, first of all, I think there's a problem with the language. There's a problem in, in trying to convince people this idea of reducing risk is kind of like doing a negative in your own mind. And it doesn't naturally sell to people. So let me uh, let me suggest to you, you're getting ready to take a, um, a cross-country flight on an airlines. And uh, airlines run, the, uh, two airlines are running different ads. And one of them says, uh, our, our aircraft has have the lowest risk of engine failure in the industry. And the other airline says, we have the most reliable engines in the industry. So which one of those are you going to fly on? I mean, both of them are describing the same effect. But when I look at somebody who says, we have, the, we have the lowest risk of engine failure, I go, holy moly, engine failure? I mean, you know, I don't want any risk of that. When I look at, I have the highest the reliability of engines, oh, I'll sign me up for that. So, so trying to explain to people risk reduction, risk mitigation, uh, especially something that's likely that, this is just very hard. It's a very hard thing to do. Secondly, it tends to focus us on the things that are most likely to happen. And frequently, the most likely is not the most damaging. Let me give an example that'll, that may rub some people the wrong way. But So we lost 80% of New Orleans to floods. And we want to prevent that. We want to mitigate that. We want to respond to that. We want to take care of New Orleans when that happens. On the other hand, from a national perspective, let me point out that it, it did not impact our national power at all. It did not impact our ability to project power overseas. If, on the other hand, we'd lost that same city to the same degree from nuclear weapon, we'd have been at war overnight. Imagine for a minute that you have hoof and mouth disease that sweeps through cattle in Kansas, and you lose uh, 3,000 head of cattle to foot and mouth disease. Well, that would, that would be a terrible tragedy. It would be a big tragedy for, the, for beef shippers because it means you can't ship overseas from anywhere in the nation. But it's a natural disaster. It's manageable. It can be explained to people. We can talk about that risk. If, if you lost the same thing because foreign agents brought biological agents uh, in and infected cattle and killed 3,000 cattle, again, we'd, we'd go to war. How do you describe the differing risk? to the nation of the loss of 3,000 head of cattle. One of them is an economic problem um, that you deal with, with, uh, by, with uh, medical and veterinarian resources in place. One of them is an act of war. So I understand the, the drive to do risk management for people out of FEMA and for industries out of CISA, that's the brother from another mother. They're, they're, they have the same mission. They do it, the two things entirely differently. But risk itself is a problem because it can blind you 
to the impacts that be, go beyond simply counting uh, economic impact or describing numbers of people affected. There's another aspect to this. That's the way people perceive their, their nation and their, and their state. That's, that's not um, if you're captured in the concept of risk management. And, and I'm trying to get to that in volume two when I talk about what happens when, when you are struck by a mom by a maximum of maximums, by a weapon from overseas. It's just, we can talk about fires and how terrible they are to your, to your home, you know, all day long. And it is terrible, and we need to help people who are burned out. When I reach across the table and slap you, it changes everything. And when somebody reaches across the ocean and slaps us, it's not the same as a natural disaster that kills the same number of people or, or levels the same number of houses. That's why I think risk is so difficult to understand and deal with. And you're framing this concept, threat at the national security level, which is different than the individual impacts we may see. What does that mean and how does that relate to the new normal? So w- one of the advantages in writing essays instead of a, uh, a, a pure text is that you get sometimes you get to invent things. And um, so I got to invent a term for what I'm trying to describe. I, I call it tinsel a threat at the national security level. And my suggestion is that a threat to the nation as a whole is quite different from a localized threat, which we must deal with because our fellow citizens have been harmed and we want to help them. But it's not at all the same as what I call a tinsel, an adversarial threat at the national security level. This has an entirely different meaning to us uh, as a nation. Uh, suppose for a minute some typh- a typhoon had uh, some bizarre typh- typhoon had, had crossed the Pacific and sunk battleships and destroyers at Anchorage in Honolulu. Um, that would have been a- a terrible. It would have been terrible. The loss of life might might have been the same as Pearl Harbor. Not at all the same as having a foreign entity fly, drop torpedoes and bombs on your sailors and, and your ships. And so the threat at the national security level, I think, has a different outcome from simply a risk or an event at the national security level. And that's what I'm trying to get to. That's what Homeland Security focuses on. That's the thing I fear we're not fully prepared for. You know, in, in 2005, the Department of Homeland Security, only two years old, issued 15 national planning scenarios. And this was their first hack at how to get cities and states ready for potential um, threats, uh, potential threats at the national level. So 15 scenarios, a nuclear detonation, a biological attack, disease outbreak. One of them, by the way, looked almost exactly like Hurricane Sandy that swept ashore in New Jersey and New York, which is why, let me speak frankly, Um, emergency management officials should not have been completely surprised by that storm. It it was laid out as one of a a national planning scenario, not not a threat that was likely to happen, but something you should be, uh, the type of thing you should be prepared for in 2003. Of those 15 scenarios that DHS suggested, 13 of them were terrorism related. So um, another six years later, the Obama administration uh, issued not planning scenarios, but a national risk assessment. It's classified, it's updated periodically. The unclassified version from 2011 is still active on the DHS website. It listed 23 potential threats at the national security level. 10 of them were terrorism related. 
you begin to see a drift here in, in focus. The uh, most recent list that I can find anywhere in research that, 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 uh, that approaches that same left effort is one that was put together by RAND in um, 2018, a final list of threats and uh, hazards um, as a recommendation for the national um, risk assessment. They listed 28 national level threats. 11 of them were terrorism related. If you go to the DHS website, and look at ready.com, which is what we as citizens are supposed to be looking at to figure out, you know, what should we worry about and what businesses should be looking at to learn about business continuity. They list 31 potential national level threats. Six of them are terrorism related. So you, you see the drift here over time. If something doesn't happen, our tendency is to think that it won't. But that's not reason that's not how we should be thinking about homeland security and so what what would help us get us back on track what would help shape our our thinking i, I would argue that looking at these threats at the national security level tinsel um that that you get from maximum maxims we should be thinking through them in class we should be thinking through them in academia we should be crafting solutions for them um, from our best minds and then helping the federal government uh, do that. That's, that's the pitch, uh, uh, essentially, of this book. Uh, that's the idea of uh, how to think about Homeland Security. Use your moms and your minds as leverage now before the thing actually happens. You spend a few chapters in volume two talking about terrorism. And when you refer to this drift, and I'm, I'm looking in particular at the chapter, The Dangerous Enigma of Terrorism, you discuss that terrorism has taken on a less clear meaning, and you provide the example that terrorism charges have been used in prosecutions, perhaps because the legal tools were more expedient. In our current domestic environment, I believe we have 34 states with different terrorism laws on the books with varying definitions. What does terrorism mean, and what is important as it relates to that threat? So I, I can think of no more important conversation in the field of homeland security than the conversation of, uh, about terrorism. Now, the uh, Obama administration didn't use the word terrorism. They used the word adversary. And I, there are both good and bad aspects of that. So I, I, I don't want to take them on. There's, there's an argument to be made that says uh, uh, you, you, we don't want to scare people. We don't want to antagonize people overseas. Let's just talk about uh, uh, adversaries. I, I don't care which of those terms you use. The point is that the overseas attack, the attack from overseas to uh, harm our national power domestically, uh, this is, I think, the most serious conversation that we can have. It's also one of the most difficult because academia, you know, academia specializes and sort of breaking things down and, and, and uh, using language in precise terms. And academia, I think, tends to make terrorism too hard for the average citizen, the average graduate student, to get, get their heads around. Could you just help me with the fundamentals? And that's what I try to do, uh, get to in this book. Let, let's not deal with the fact that there are more than 100 different academic definitions of terrorism. And let's see if we can just cut to the chase. To me, cutting to the chase is that... Uh, terrorism is a form of war. The terrorism we're worried about at a national level is a form of war. It's just a form of war that cheats. It's a form of war that does not use 
the normal rules of warfare. And there are rules, and they do matter. You know, states compete with uniformed armies, not with people in secret uniforms so they can mix among others and then go to an ice cream store and, and stand next to a baby carriage and set off a suicide vest. That's not a normal rule of war. That changes changes the nature of the, of the war. So war is, normally has a set of rules before, during, and after warfare. You don't you don't poison medical supplies, no matter who you're fighting. You know, you don't poison water wells, no matter who you're fighting. And after the war, you want to establish it in a way that you want to establish a peace that leads to a bigger peace, not a punitive peace. So that there's a way to think about war. Terrorism intentionally breaks those rules. It uses breaking the rules as a weapon. And its goal is to drive a wedge between the people and the government to convince the people that the government can't protect them and to force the government to over-respond. So the people are as angry at the government for the measures the government imposes as they are at the terrorists for the crime that they've committed. So here's our problem as Americans. Long ago, long ago, we decided that um, terrorism is something that happens overseas. And when those things happen here, they're their crimes. And the reason we decided that is because our means to fight that kind of, of, um, of threat was the democratic system. We gave everybody a voice. We gave everybody a shot at power um, by opening up our system uh, 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 to letting people speak their minds across the spectrum. We minimized the national level threat. That doesn't mean we ended all crime. You know, we still had the Klan, we still had uh, Alf and Elf, and we still had uh, a variety of domestic threats, but they were manageable using public safety. That's, that's the important distinction. They were manageable using public safety. What's new now is this threat from overseas is not always manageable by using public safety, and they have weapons they didn't have available before. So we have a history for 200 years of dealing with what other nations called terrorism. We deal with them not with our military, not with a national level response, but with laws, with a judicial system. And, and that, wor- that has worked against our internal threats. The, the Klan is widely uh, accepted as a domestic terrorist threat. It's also broadly controlled by federal law enforcement. Can we stop all burglary? No. Can we stop all murders? No. Can we stop all drug trafficking? No. But can we stop most of it using domestic law enforcement without having to use the CIA domestically, without having to put a soldier on each corner? Yes. As a democratic nation, we've been able to do that. Terrorism poses, at the national level, poses a different threat. It requires different resources. You know, and and consequently, that's why I worry about terrorism, and I worry that we understand it's not just you can't just prosecute terrorists. You have to go to the core of their complaint. Um, you're you're gonna sometimes there is no solution to terrorism, but the kinetic solution, and knowing what what works and when really does come out of academic studies of a variety of different terrorist threats across space and time. So so that's why I think understanding, thinking about how to think about terrorism and the threats that we face, this, this is an integral, important part in the field of homeland security. I didn't say it's done. The point of this book is not let me tell you what to do. The point of this, this book series is 
Let me tell you what we should be thinking about. In volume two, you end up analyzing just one extreme threat, the threat of nuclear attack. Why did you pick that and what others deserved consideration? So here's, here's my pitch. The DHS is doing, and other government agencies are doing, um, a lot of hard work in risk management and in understanding the threats that we face, especially with the formation of this uh, um, new department that looks at um, consolidating approaches to West, uh, the, uh, weapons of mass destruction. They've done exercises. They put out guidance. The problem is most of it is classified or through official channels. Well, that doesn't help average citizens understand what's going on. It doesn't help politicians to understand what they ought to be voting for. Uh, it certainly doesn't help professors and graduate students trying to study the subject. How do we get our hands around these maximum of maximums if the serious intellectual work about them is being done entirely behind closed doors? So what I do is take everything that I've learned and try to put together a framework, not a theory, but a framework and say, let's think through these elements in each of our major moms. And in the end of volume two, I pick one threat, the threat of a nuclear weapon, and I say, let's build a framework to, to walk through how to think about this, and let's use a case study um, to, to do that. Um, I picked a nuclear weapon, and I, I look at Hiroshima. We don't have a, a lot of examples to use with nuclear weapons, and there are some some things we'll have to postulate because we can't make a direct translation from our democratic form of government to the form of government uh, in existence in Japan at wartime. But we can take a look at the damage. And so this, this framework tries to use some of the uh, terms and terminologies and concepts that are available now. Uh, FEMA has developed recently a thing called lifelines. Uh, emergency managers know about this. Uh, I think generally the population doesn't. But over the last 15, 20 years with the large disasters we've had, they've come to the conclusion that we, that we need to, to put together it sort of baskets, uh, ways to think about um, what we have to do in the aftermath of the disaster. We have to address safety and security, law enforcement, search and rescue, fire services, government services, responder safety. We have to think about food, water, and shelter, evacuations, water, uh, durable goods, water infrastructure. We have to think about energy, the power grid, temporary power. They have put together a very good framework that they call the lifelines. And they're now using this as a checklist on a daily basis after a major natural disaster. This is really a, a, a kind of a bold step forward. I actually think, I don't, I don't mean to take credit from anybody, but I can tell you, 34 years in the Army, every battalion does this every afternoon on an exercise. You know, what's our status on personnel, you know, uh, medical maintenance, ammunition, food, water. So I use that framework, which FEMA has now refined, and I look at it in the aftermath of a nuclear weapon. And I suggest these are start points for, for my students and for the public to think about. And what do we need to do? What can we do? What do we need to do uh, differently? The um, folks that work critical infrastructure have a different uh, approach. They've developed a thing called a critical functions set. 
And, and they say, let's integrate, instead of talking about just critical infrastructure, hey, it's power, it's pharmaceuticals, let's integrate how those things work together. So let's look at the whole field of how we distribute things. That involves communications, that involves uh, shipping, that involves receiving, that involves the, uh, the actual distribution. So if we have a bio issue, uh, rather than looking at small little pieces, let's ask the question, how do we distribute antivirals? And then, uh, you know, how do we produce them? How do we pack them? Who's going to give them out? And we look at that as a system. So I, I apply that to, to the nuclear uh, case study. And so it, it's a stimulative for my students and for the average citizen to think through this disaster. And I culminate volume two with that, um, with that, with a nuclear disaster. And then volume three is all about, let's take the other moms, chemical, biological, um, radiological, cyber, EMP, let's look at uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse. Let's look at the other major events that could take place and use these same frameworks and think through what responses, what we're ready for now and what we need to be ready for. That's the, that's the thrust of uh, volume three which by the way is still on my word processor here. So that, with any luck, that'll be released within the next year. At the end of volume two, you talk about bad dads. We already heard about the moms. Tell us about the dads. <laughs> so once again, uh, you, you, get to use, you get to make up your own terms uh, if you're doing essays. And this is actually after I wrote this and while the draft was in the uh, publication process, the concept by a different name began to emerge um, in the Department of Defense. And I have now uh, been to conferences at the Army War College where, that are talking about the, this concept. I've been to meetings at uh, Northern Command that are talking about this concept. I've seen some discussion coming out of Army North in San Antonio that talks about this. <clears throat> Let me talk about area denial just a minute. Now we're back to national security strategy, okay? We have a big problem in, uh, in the Baltic states. And we have a big problem in the South Pacific right now in that our potential opponent, um, Russia and China respectively, have, dis have adopted a strategy of area denial. We have only a few um, troops in Estonia. We don't have active troops uh, in, uh, we, they move back and forth to Latvia because they're NATO members. They're on the border of Russia. There's some danger that Russia could cross over and want to take them. And in order to reinforce them, we no longer have the massive forces we had there during the Cold War. We only have a few troops and relatively light vehicles. <clears throat> so we would have to move troops from the United States to Bremerhaven or other port in, uh, ports in Germany, maybe ports in, in Poland. We have to move by train hundreds of miles to get to the fight on the border of Russia. And Russia's strategy ha has been, uh, the, what, what they're doing, is they have put in very good air defense systems, their new SA-400 system, uh, and other uh, intelligence systems, radar systems, that would block our access 
our ability to move into that area to help to defend our NATO partners and allies. The Chinese have done the same thing in the South China Sea. That's what they're building. These islands are all about. That's what they're developing, long-range missiles. Our carrier aircraft have a range of about 500 miles. Their ship-killing missiles have a range of about 1,500 miles. Their idea is to block, is to deny us access to them so we can't even strike them. They hit us. They they, with a system, of, uh, a concept of area denial. <clears throat> the idea of a dad is to take that strategy and impose it on the United States domestically, a domestic area denial. Suppose that we did go up against an opponent that required us to de- deploy our significant military resources, active duty National Guard Reserve from the United States. We certainly can now imagine giving the international threat that might be expressed domestically, given the weapons of mass destruction that are now available uh, broadly after the Cold War, uh, given our, the vulnerabilities of our rail networks in just in time, we certainly can imagine how an opponent would extend that area of denial into the domestic part of the United States, prevent our trucks from moving on our own highways, uh, drop the, the 17 uh, 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 automobile or transportation bridges across the Mississippi River and the four railroad bridges across the Mississippi and divide the nation in half. This would be a strategy of domestic area denial within the United States. It would require an entirely different approach. How do you secure all of that? Are we going to put soldiers on all of that? Or are we going to use the National Guard? We can't use it overseas if we're guarding everything domestically. This is a whole different problem that we've never really faced before, the idea of domestic area denial. And we're just getting off the ground, I think, uh, in thinking about it. It's another issue of how to think about homeland security. Both volumes have some interesting forewords. Volume 1 is written by Senator Lieberman and Volume 2 by General Eberhardt. How did they get involved and what did they add to the books? I am one of those people that always reads forwards. A lot of people skip past it. I hope in this book series they will not skip the forwards and they will not skip the opening chapter, which talks about how to use this book. If they skip those parts, then they'll think this is like any other textbook. Here are the answers and they won't understand. Here are here is how to think about the questions. Um, Senator Lieberman, uh, I had some contact with back in the uh, formative days after 9-11. He was a very far-thinking individual in both national security and homeland security. He was one of the very first and most aggressive voices in favor of forming a Department of Homeland Security. It was really um, the, uh, it was really Senator Lieberman in the, in the Senate and Representative Gephardt in the House that pushed for a Department of Homeland Security. There was a, I'm I'm not playing or pitching or defending uh, politics, I'm just describing, there was a broad push back from the Republican Party, which said, I'm not sure we need to form another major department. In fact, we'd like to unload some of those we have. We don't want a Department of Education. We don't want a Department of Energy. I'm not sure we need a new Department of Homeland Security. And Senator Lieberman was one of the first people to really argue strenuously, we do need such a department because bringing national security, seeing national security threats expressed domestically is a new and different thing. He has stayed very active in that field and, by the way, very bipartisan in his approach to that. 
He's uh, served most recently on a committee looking at agricultural threats. Um, he's served with a variety of Republicans, uh, to include Secretary Ridge and some uh, congressional commissions. Um, and I, I think is a very um, his current concern is uh, a, a bio attacks against agriculture. Um, and I think a very far thinking person on the subject. So I went to him because I had worked with his staff uh, soon after the, the formation of uh, DHS and found him very responsive in trying to um, put on the street something that uh, a book that talked about how to think about Homeland Security, not just what to think about Homeland Security. So m my credit to him for what he's done and my thanks to him for um, providing forward to the book. Senator Everhart, uh, a lot of civilians don't know. But folks in um, the field of Homeland Security, especially in the military, really know. Ed Everhart was the commander of the North American Air Defense Command, now the North American Aerospace Command, the people that protect us from overseas threat by, from air and space. He was the commander on 9-11. He, he was the guy who worked with the FAA to ground every civilian flight and to launch air defense caps, combat air patrols over major American cities to include Washington, D.C. Uh, he was the guy that uh, owned the airspace over the United States for the two, three, four days it took us to put, uh, to understand what was going on and put the system back together. And because of that, because of his experience, when DOD moved to create a single unified command for um, Homeland Security resources in the United States. They called it Northern Command, and they placed it next door to North American Air Defense Command. They now have twin buildings side by side, and they have the same commander. It's really unique. There are two four-star commands commanded by the same four-star officer. The North American Air Defense Command, the deputy commander, is a Canadian three-star. For uh, Northern Command, the deputy is an American officer from the reserves, uh, our Army Reserve for National Guard, um, and the same four-star in charge of both of them. When that command was formed, actually six months before DHS, one of the first things it undertook was to promote education in the field of Homeland Security, both within the military and without. And for three, four, or five years, until DHS really got its feet under it, formed the whole um, uh, Department of, of Science and Technology, uh, the whole outreach to civilian universities, the creation of the Center for Homeland Security and Defense at the Naval Postgraduate School, until DHS could pull that together. The best voice for Homeland Security educate, graduate education in the nation was the military facility at Colorado Springs, headed by uh, General Ed Everhart. So I approached him and asked him if he'd be interested in doing a forward uh, on the subject of the importance of education in the field of Homeland Security. And he, he was um, very supportive, very forthcoming, and I, I really appreciate uh, his effort and his support, his support on that. And I appreciate what he did for us as a nation, something that really is he was an, he's an unsung hero. People know about building Northern Command. They don't understand the impact that Northern Command had by running conferences, by being open to academicians, by, for, by giving a meeting place, by be giving voices to those who are trying to stand up graduate programs in the early days of Homeland Security. So my thanks for him for doing the forward to volume two. Dr. Ruth David, by the way, has agreed to do the forward to volume three when it comes out. Uh, she was a uh, nuclear weapons designer uh, with, I think, Sandia Labs. 
Uh, she was head of technology for the CIA for a while, and then head of a um, organization called Answer, and SER, a spinoff of the Rand Corporation, uh, doing contract advisory work on 9-11. And she formed really the first think tank uh, as a not-for-profit. Uh, her company formed a not-for-profit think tank in the field of Homeland Security, actually before 9-11. And that's where I happened to be working. I went to work there about two weeks before 9-11. So my, my thanks to her for really providing the intellectual underpinnings uh, from that not-for-profit, again, in the early days of uh, Homeland Security. Well, Dave, we've taken up a lot of your time, and we know you're working on Volume 3. What else are you working on? Oh, well, I have... I personally have a variety of uh, issues uh, uh, working. I, I am an active teacher, and uh, anybody who actually teaches knows that that's not a come in at 9 a.m., read the paper, drink coffee, and, and have class for an hour or two. If you're really going to take care of your students, you really need to be engaged with them you know, all week long. I am uh, as concerned with how my students write as I am and what they write. And so that is a full-time concern for me. My wife and I actually are working on the side of a book we hope to eventually publish, sort of a shrunken white for professional writers. Uh, we deal in Homeland Security with a lot of uh, mid-career folks, uh, police, fire, uh, EMS, uh, health, um, people who really know their business and understand lessons learned, but have not, you know, when you're, when you're hauling hose and saving lives, when you're cutting kids out of the backseat to traffic accidents, it's really hard to do to develop your skills at writing paragraphs. And so um, I spend a lot of time, uh, I, I think, with, with my students trying to work on that issue. And we've had some interesting research projects. I, I run a student research project uh, uh, every year out of the Bush School. Um, last year and this year, our research project is for the Attorney General for the state of Texas looking, doing some uh, research in sex trafficking of uh, domestic minors. And so uh, we have a variety of other sort of irons in the fire, but my real focus, sort of the um, love of my life besides grandchildren, is this issue of how to think about Homeland Security. And I'm hoping to bring some things out of Volume 3, which will be new. This is not just a list of let me tell you about uh, Newt Kim and Bio. There will be a case study in each area. I think the cyber case study in particular people will find uh, very interesting, but I think there will be perhaps some surprises. And I'll just give you one out of the draft that I'm working right now. Um, I'm about to the point where I'm going to reduce my focus on Kim as a national level threat. It's a it's a national level threat in the in the way that if we had an attack on the on a chemical plant and got anything like the results in Bhopal. Certainly, it would be a national disaster, and certainly it would be a threat at the national security level. Um, but, but the aftermath, the, the threat against the infrastructure, the lifelines, the crit critical uh, um, functions set, those things are not nearly as badly impacted from the chemical threat as they are from a radiological threat, where you may be barred from a huge area for a long period of time. Not uh, the same as the threat to, um, uh, from a bio event. You know, so many issues uh, cascade from a bio event. Are truck drivers, long-haul truck drivers, still gonna be on the road in a bio event? Uh, we still gonna be able to get food to the cities? We have some facilities that require somebody there all day, every day. 
what happens in a major bio event to our nuclear plants and the support staff for a nuclear plant. So I, I think thinking through that in volume three is an interesting challenge. And I'm about to the point, just one suggestion, that I'm, I'm seeing maybe Kim is a little less of a threat. I may take it off my top rank uh, issues simply because the aftermath of a chemical event, while devastating politically, will not be the same as the aftermath from them. So that's the kind of an interesting insight that I think will come out of thinking through how to think about these other threats to, um, to Homeland Security. What have you mapped out for volume four? Yes, uh, actually, um, volume uh, three is going to be avoiding the aftermath. The question is, how do we avoid the worst of the aftermath? And for volume four, I'm going to look at emergency management. So uh, when you talk about um, brothers, when we talk about brothers from another mother as the approach to risk management from FEMA looking at people and um, uh, CISA looking at uh, systems, boy, that really is the case with with emergency management and Homeland Security. I call this sibling rivalry because emergency management has pride of place. It has pride of lineage. It's been here for a long time. It's well-established. Its concepts are in place. Its people are in place everywhere. It has a very strong union place. It has a very strong union voice. So emergency management is well-established. DHS is this new thing which supposedly is in charge of emergency management. Emergency management is one of those public safety things that has become a subset. They don't necessarily like that. Now, in an emergency Everybody gets along. That's why I call it sibling rivalry. You know, brothers and sisters may not get along at the dinner table, but let mom and dad, mom or dad fall ill. Everybody shows up. Everybody pitches in. And the same thing's true in our nation. On a day-to-day basis, you know, Homeland Security, emergency management, kind of a little distance from each other from time to time. In an emergency, no question, everybody trusts everybody else and the system works. But it causes emergency managers to think and write about Homeland Security from a different perspective. There are actually a couple of um, pretty good texts out about Homeland Security written by those people who specialize in emergency management. I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to write about emergency management from the perspective of someone who who, um, specializes in national security threats, threats at the tensile threats, threats to the national security net, the moms that are not maximum hurricanes or maximum wildfires, but maximum nuke, nuke, Kim, and so forth, and ask the questions, what's different about emergency management in this different kind of threat and aftermath? So, yeah, that's what we'll do with uh, Volume 4, assuming that I can keep my health and my audience for that long. (laughs) Best of luck with those, and thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate this effort, and and, uh, Beth, let me tell you, I appreciate what you're doing. I I just want to – I've been through your archive. It, it's really eye-opening. I mean, you, you talk to a wide range of people. You have a wide range of books, and I, I really want to endorse this. If your audience just found you through this uh, particular recording, I'm glad, but I really would encourage them to take a look at what you got online. It's very good work. I appreciate what you do. How to Think About Homeland Security, Volume 1, The Imperfect Intersection of National Security and Public Safety, and Volume 2, Risk, Threats, and the New Normal, both by Dr. David McIntyre, are available now from Roman and Littlefield. Thank you for listening to New Books in National Security. 
a podcast channel on the New Books Network.